All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. People just didn't really move around very much, which means you get this huge amount of loyalty um, Mm -hmm. to a particular um, region, to a particular accent. You can identify who's in your social group because of the way that they speak. You know who the people are who are a threat because they sound different. And it's still something that is there today. Um, And in one of my chapters, um, which is on professional and performance voices, I interview, among other people, a a voice coach who basically says, you know, if a film or or a a British film or a television programme decides they want somebody who's kind of funny but untrustworthy, they will pick somebody with a particular accent because because of the connotations. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere, what would it say and why? Currently, with the sort of work that I'm doing, it's judge a person by what they say and not by the accent that they're saying it in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. To those of you who are new listening to this podcast for the first time, The main aim of our podcast is to really deconstruct language teaching, to bridge the gap between research and personal practice. Each episode is dedicated to our vision of education, continuous growth that is accessible, affordable, and appropriate to your context. Andrew, we also have a membership, don't we? We absolutely do. Our Learn Your English Teacher Development Membership, where you can join a community of curious teachers and educators who want to achieve more without having to plan and teach more. Leo, you like to say, teach more mindfully, right? That's right. And that's what we try to do with our membership. We try to provide content, mentoring, courses, and more importantly, a community, a community of practice to help teachers plan less so they can actually have time to develop more. And what we focus on, Andrew, mindful and meaningful teaching, better thinking, continuous learning, developing a healthy mind, purposeful creativity, mental tools for thought, and humanistic education. Andrew, if somebody wants to become a member, what do they have to do? Oh, so simple. Just go to courses.learnyourenglish.net and become a member right there. You'll have access to all of our materials, not only for this month, but for all the months that you missed in the past. If you want more information, check out learnyourenglish.net slash memberships. In this episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast, we've had the immense pleasure of hosting Dr. Jane Seta, who is a professor of phonetics at the University of Reading in the UK. In this episode, we talk about the beginning of her teaching career, her work on pronunciation, her new book, Your Voice Speaks Volumes, as well as her writing and linguistic prejudice. This was a great episode, and we really hope you enjoy listening to this. 
thought we would start right from the beginning. Perhaps mm-hmm. you could talk uh, uh, talk us through your humble beginnings in in language education. Perhaps why you decided to focus on language education, and even how you ended up becoming so passionate about phonology and phonological awareness. Okay. Um, well, I, I think it probably goes back to uh, my dad, uh, and I write about this in my book. He was um, he was always picking me up on how I spoke and drawing my attention to language features and differences and so on. Um, and it wasn't until much later that I realised that this is because um, he was from a very working class background um, in London. And uh, he would have had a, a London type accent. I think he was too far south for Cockney, but he would have had a London accent. And um, he left school at the age of 11. Oh. Um, he was born in 1911, if, in case anyone's looking for some context there. Um, so before the First World War. And uh, he was working in Covent Garden Market um, selling fruit and veg, is what I understand. And he wanted a, he wanted a, a better job. And he realised in order to do that, he would have to change the way that he spoke. Um, and so he did. And he eventually got work in a bank. And I've got some very cute pictures of him um, in the sort of bank uniform. And he was a very, very young man. And, uh, and this experience had led him to decide that um, he didn't want me to be held back by the way that I spoke. Um, and so he corrected me all the time. I mean, it was um challenging sometimes um but yes he'd, he'd pick me up on things that he wasn't happy about or he didn't think were standard or non-standard features and so on and and it just kind of made me more aware I think of speech and speaking and and how people interact and so on and I, I didn't really realize why he was doing it at the time but it, it occurred to me much later that uh, it was because he wanted to make sure that I didn't miss out on opportunities because of the way that I spoke. And um, I think if you have read any of the book at all, you'll know that in the UK, um, the way that you speak, people get very hot under the collar about about different sorts of accents and they have positive and negative evaluations about different sorts of accents. It's it's really quite a big thing in, in the UK. And so I I was at school, I did English literature and modern languages, I did French and German to um, age 18, and then, uh, and then I went to, uh, went to university and I did um, language studies, linguistics and, um, and English literature. I had to do a joint degree, otherwise I wouldn't have done English literature at all, but that's <laughs> how it went. Um, and, you know, it stood me in good stead in some ways to do English literature. Um, and it was one of my teachers who actually said to me, you're more interested in the way language works than in the sort of analysing literary text, so why don't you try linguistics, which was very insightful because um, I started this degree, and the thing that really made so much sense to me mm. was phonetics and and pronunciation. It just everything fitted. There wasn't anything that didn't make any sense. So I'm kind of cruising through um, the phonetics modules, the phonetics classes, and uh, my my fellow students are getting me to help them out because they don't understand what's going on and so on. So you know, I was already teaching even when I was a student. <laughs> uh, during my summer holidays, um, I had vacation work in language schools, English language schools in the town that I grew up in. Um, And this is a big industry Mm -hmm. in the UK. Um, And I did that in my summer holidays. And I got really interested um, in the Japanese Mm -hmm. students because it was just so different. They were so different from anything else that I'd experienced. 
And we had a Japanese student um, come and stay with us because the homestay fell through. Um, and they asked if my family would, would take the student. And I just I, I just fell in love with this student, quite frankly, um, and thought I, I have to go to Japan. And so when I graduated, I thought what I'd do, because I was interested in English language teaching, I knew that if I wanted to do a master's, I needed two years experience um, teaching before I could I could do a master's degree. So um, I decided to go to Japan for two years, uh, which I absolutely loved. Um, and then come back and do a master's, which which I did and came back and did a master's degree in um, linguistics and English language teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and while I was doing that, my dissertation was on pronunciation um, of Japanese learners of English. It was actually looking at whether a positive analysis mm -hmm. could give an accurate representation of the pronunciation difficulties faced by um, faced by Japanese students um, and uh, basically decided that, you know, it could in some ways and it couldn't in others. So I was looking at that sort of thing because I'd done all this phonetic transcription for that. Um, my uh, supervisor for my dissertation recommended me to a colleague who is. I was Peter about Roach, to ask you that. I was like, did you study under Peter Roach? He taught me. Um, he taught me how to program in BBC Basic for language teaching. So he didn't actually really? teach me any phonetics. He was teaching a module on that, on this, on this program, um, which was interesting. Um, he's never taught me phonetics, but he employed me to work on the Cambridge English Pronouncing Dictionary oh. with him um, as a kind of researcher and, uh, and eventually a co-editor and uh, supervised my PhD nice. thesis. So that's uh, that's how I came to know Peter. That was at the University mm -hmm. of Leeds at the time. Um, and then he relocated to Reading. So I was going to relocate with him to Reading as a research assistant, um, but was offered the job in Hong Kong. So then I went to Hong Kong for six years and uh, taught phonetics and phonology and English language and communication skills at a university in Hong Kong. Um, and started my work on speech rhythm in Hong Kong English. So that's when I started working on that. And that's what I wrote my PhD on. Uh, so I was interested in um, speech rhythm in the English spoken in Hong Kong. And originally, I took a very ELT-oriented mm. approach. Yeah. So I was looking at it from the point of view of what do we need to teach people in Hong Kong to um, enable them to use English intonation um, in a way that would be used by native speakers of British or American English or whatever. So I, I started with that kind of angle. And then I got into the global Englishes, world Englishes, Englishes mm. and international language kind of perspective of looking at the variety um, developing in its own right as a variety. And then that kind of led me into that direction, really. Um, and then, I mean, you know, with um, with all of that sort of stuff, looking at um, global Englishes and teaching English as a global language and the whole issue of native speaker versus non-native speaker teachers and um, accent prejudice and um, the fact that if you are a non-native speaker teacher, we've got research that shows that people don't feel they're a good enough model of pronunciation. But if you're looking at it from a global English's point of view, um, rather than an ELT, EFL point of view, then it's a very different sort of perspective. So, um, so I kind of got into it from that angle. Um, but the thing that I'm asked most about um, 
is uh, pronunciation and accents and English, British English accents. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm often asked about those things. And I've never done any research in this area. Um, well, maybe a small amount, but it's not really been my research focus because my focus has been um, mostly intonation and speech, prosody, rhythm, etc., that sort of thing in um, Southeast Asian type um, varieties of English. And also I've worked on those features in atypical populations. So um, mostly with my colleague who works on children with Williams syndrome. Um, and we've done some work comparing children with Williams and Downs syndrome with typical, typically developing children. So we've done that. So um, I'm asked about pronunciation, I, I guess, probably because I'm an editor of the pronouncing dictionary. Um, but it's not something that I've done a lot of research in, but it's certainly something that I'm interested in. And I've got very kind of immersed in this area recently um, mm. and looking at things like accent prejudice and uh, um, and also um, intersectionality. So how different aspects of um, a person's uh, of a person, basically, um, come together to. Um, advantage or disadvantage a person um and I, I guess with all the stuff that's been happening recently with the uh the black lives matters and what have you mm. um it's it's things it's it's of interest to to look at these sorts of things and to reflect on what i started out observing mm. which is that um different accents um cause you to be viewed differently Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I was on BBC Radio Kent um, fairly recently with a um, with somebody who was a, a, a local um, a local DJ to Kent, and I noticed when I listened back to it that you could hear a lot more of my um, of my features of speech that I would have had um, when oh, I was younger because I'm because I'm talking to somebody who's from um, who's from an area of the country that's uh, where I grew up. So that was kind of interesting, and I guess the less uh, formal I am the more likely I am to sound like that um, but you know I I don't I my accent is not received pronunciation um, by any stretch and uh, <laughs> non-native speakers of English often think that my accent is received pronunciation I was going to say it was um, <laughs> no it's to not. me it is well that that's it you know I mean but if you asked an RP expert they'd say definitely not Um, uh, And, you know, if you'd ask another phonetician, I mean, I I spent time in in the US with um, the original American editor of the Pronouncing Dictionary. um, And he said, oh, you've got a really interestingly diphthongal fleece vowel. And that's kind of so instead of saying fleece or key, saying key, that sort of thing, fleece. And and that's that's a feature of my accent. So, you know, it's it's things that you don't notice about yourself. Um, and then, then you mm. kind of go back and you think, oh yes, I need to learn to listen a bit more analytically to that again and, and work out what it is I'm doing. But I, I have um, what's often described as a southern standard British English accent. Um, okay. it, it's that kind of accent. So it's not a million miles away from uh, from RP, but it's really not RP. It's it's not that. Um, and I guess huh. you could say it was. Um, had features of estuary English, um, which is by some considered to be an accent and others not. 
And occasionally, because I lived for um, eight years in Yorkshire, so I spent four years in York doing my first degree and then another four years living in Leeds, which are both in in Yorkshire. Occasionally, I have a a Yorkshire vowel come out um, and it's really weird and I don't know know why it does that. Um, Yeah, occasionally, but not very often. I I don't tend to have, um, I don't tend to say bath. I, I will tend to say bath, not bath, but occasionally something comes out that's interesting. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, oh, where did that come from? Um, and also sometimes I think you sort of, um, as an English language teacher, you kind of develop a particular way of speaking to mm. um, enable yourself to be better understood by people who are maybe less fluent in the language. Um, so, you know, sometimes you find that you're speaking differently because of that. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, that's it really that's my sort of potted history there's a lot to unpack here jane um loads yeah loads here i think we could start by i'm very interested in the story about your dad because you said something that in order for him to get a better job he had to change the way he spoke Mm. what did he do exactly to change the way he spoke because i think that's a question that i always think about specifically for language learners who want to change the way they speak to sound more like a certain group of people or a certain nationality. Yeah, yeah. And I think your dad didn't have access to the internet in 1911. Um, so well, what I did mean, he you know, he was born in 1911, so he, he wouldn't have been have, trying to access the internet anyway at that age. Um, I mean, the short answer is, I don't know. Um, huh. He passed away in 1992. Um, and although I've sort of come to realize later that that's, that's what happened, um, I don't actually know what he did, but I will tell mm. you that he was a very strongly self-motivated person uh, and that yeah. he would have listened to the way that these people spoke who had these different jobs and he would have actively changed um, the way that he spoke um, through that, through doing so. So thinking, I want to be in this group, so I'm going to listen to how those people sound and, and change that. And I, I can't say that, I mean, he didn't have an RP accent at all. It wasn't that right. he suddenly became an RP speaker, but he was much closer to standard than I remember some of his brothers and sisters being. Um, and again, you know, I mean, that they were quite old when I was born. Um, right. But I, I do remember uh, one of his brothers sounding very London, for example. <laughs> Um, and you're kind of thinking, could these two people be from the same family because they sound so different? Um, but they had different motivations in life. You know, they right. wanted different things. And so so they sounded interesting. Uh, and I, I don't know whether his family used to say to him, you know, you need if you want to get a better job, you're going to have to speak differently. But it's very mm. um, I mean, it's it's my fair lady, basically, for men, isn't it? What he did, because um, she was a right. Covent Garden flower seller um, and she wanted to be a lady in a flower shop. And he was a Covent Garden fruit and veg seller um, and decided that he wanted to um, have a job that earned more money and had more status. Mm-hmm. Um, whether his motivations were in order to you know, better support a family, I don't know. I, I really don't know why he did it, but um, it's clear that he did. Right. Um, which kind of makes the story really interesting, I think. It but, is very yeah. interesting. And even the fact that you said that um, he was actually correcting you because he didn't want you to sound the way he sounded. And I, again, we're going to kind of like talk about your article later on, but how did you feel when your dad corrected you? And what kinds of corrections was he, his, was he making? Um, 
a lot of it was grammar, to be honest. Oh, um, okay. So rather than pronunciation, I don't remember him picking me up on things like glottal stops. And I know that glottal <laughs> stops are something that worry people a lot in, worry some people a lot in, in, um, in the UK, for example. But Very quickly, remember. just to interrupt you, just so people know, can you tell us what a glottal stop is? A glottal stop. Okay, so if we take a word like butter, um, if I pronounce it with a glottal stop, it will be butter. Right. And uh, for your American audience, a lot of American speakers will say butter, for example, with that kind of sound. But it's interesting. The glottal stop is gaining currency in some American English accents. I've, I've, really? I've heard it more and I've noticed that people have um, done some research oh. showing that that's the case. So an interesting feature. Um, yeah, so that's that's what a glottal stop is. Um, right. So I don't I don't remember him picking me up on that. But I mean, he was also. Um, he was always very keen that I should. Now, what was the word he used to use? Um, it wasn't speak nicely. It was, um, and it wasn't speak clearly. There was a phrase, and I'm trying to remember what it was. That's okay. Uh, but I mean, he'd pick me up on things like um, so a dialect feature. I mean, but basically, um, the area that I grew up in in the southeast of England um, was right on on the eastern end of Kent, and a lot of people from London moved out. Um, of London slums or were moved out of London slums after the war um, and a lot of them settled in that sort of um, area of the country and also in Essex which is to the to the north um, on either side of the Thames estuary um, and so you get a lot of London type features in the accents that are spoken in Kent now whereas originally it was it sounded very different there aren't mm. many speakers that have the original Kent accent left anymore um, but it, there are a lot of London features and glottal stops are among them. Um, but it was also some of the dialect forms. So things like um, and this is something, again, that turns up in My Fair Lady, things like saying them shoes instead of those shoes. Right. He'd always pick me up if I said that. So, you know, I want one of them. Uh, I want one of them magazines, those <laughs> magazines you know, sort of right in there immediately. <laughs> when I said it, he didn't he didn't do it in public. Um, uh, which is which is another bugbear, <laughs> but he always he always did it. Um, if we were at home, he would always pick me up on it. Um, yeah. Nice, nicely spoken. I think that was his phrase. He wanted me to be nicely spoken, and that was all okay. about um, pronouncing things clearly and uh, and also not using dialect forms that were away from the standard. Basically, so it was that Very that kind of thing. Um, but yes, as I say, I I didn't. Until I knew more about his history, I wouldn't have realized that his motivation for doing that um, was probably because he wanted to make sure that I was not held back by the way that I spoke, um, which is something that happens in the UK. Mm. Um, so, interesting. yeah, interesting guy, really. Yeah, no, it's I mean, lots of uh, lots of interesting lessons there. I'm wondering if one day you actually hope to because I feel like your dad some somehow primed you into becoming who yeah. you are in a way based on, on, yeah. on the story that you just shared. Yeah. But also um, my mum loved musicals. So we'd sit um, um, that kind of Saturday afternoon on the television, there'd be sport on one channel and musicals on the other. And, you know, this was the 1970s and there was only two channels. 
and um, <laughs> in the UK. And uh, so, you know, my dad would, uh, if, if he was in, he'd want to watch the football. Um, but my mum and I, uh, we liked musicals. And uh, and My Fair Lady was, I think, my favourite musical just because I loved the dresses and I loved Audrey Hepburn and, and, and right. this whole kind of language thing was going on, which is obviously something I was very familiar with. So I think also with my mum, the fact that uh, we used to sit and watch musicals together, that that sort of thing um, right. uh, was was also um, an influence. So I can't say it was all my dad, but uh, mm. yeah. You mentioned something um, that eventually we should spend more time talking about, but I think I'm going to pivot to that and then we can kind of return. Um, you talked about um, when you were talking to this DJ in Kent, you've mentioned that you've Upon listening to your conversation again, you've noticed that you were somewhat copying some of the sounds or maybe. Yeah, not not copying trying, exactly. Um, like sounding like the person, right? Like some yeah. sort of alignment, because I, I that reminded yeah. me of alignment theory. And I wanted to ask you because you wrote an article where you I think it was about Megan, uh, Megan yes. Markle. I don't know anything about yeah. celebrities. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, where she changed her speech um, to sound more like. A British person. So perhaps you could tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's they're called accommodation strategies. Mm, um, okay. And I mean, you know, most people, not everyone, but most people will alter features of their speech or the way that they communicate, depending on who it is they're speaking to. Um, mm. So this is why we get parents complaining that they can't understand teenagers and stuff like that. You know, there's just different um, different ways that we speak to people depending on things like how well we know them and on hierarchical right. um, differences and all this kind of thing, whether we want to fit in or not and so on. Um, and, yeah, I was asked about whether um, Meghan Markle had changed the way that she spoke um, in the process of um, becoming part of the royal family. Um, and I, I listened to her vowels and actually I did um, an article in the conversation with a couple of mm -hmm. um, other phonetics colleagues. Um, and we analysed some of her vowels um, to see if there was any movement towards um, uh, uh, towards British English. And we, we didn't find that there was. In fact, in one case, we found that it was sort of moving more towards a, a more extreme American version than a British version. Um, but one of my colleagues looked at um, her intonation. And um, a feature of English intonation that you don't get so much in American English um, is called the full rise. So it's something like, um, yes. Um, so you don't get that sort of pattern so much in American English. So um, something. Uh, let's think of a longer sentence. Um, something like, um, oh, are those for me? That sort of thing. So if, if, if she was in a crowd and somebody was giving right. her some flowers um, and my colleague noticed that she picked up this pattern, which is quite a British sounding pattern, um, whereas American speakers will tend to use a, a rise. Um, mm -hmm. Are those for me? That sort of thing. Um, are those for me? Uh, which is um, in British English, it's considered um, more dominant from a speech point of view. Um, not mm. that you necessarily think you are dominant, but from a, um, an interlocutor point of view, it's it's seen like that. So, um, so the patterns are used differently in British and American English with American speakers tending not to use it. So it's a much more sort of tentative sounding thing. And uh, my colleague, Jeff Lindsay, wrote something um, looking at that and saying that uh, she seems to have picked up this feature so um this was seen as something that was sort of accommodating to right. british speakers 
um, by using this pattern, it was more a pattern they were used to and less um, less dominant, so therefore less kind of demanding sounding. Right. Um, and um, softer, more tentative, that sort of thing. So um, it was looking at, at whether she was doing that. And, I mean, we didn't have an awful lot of footage, to be honest, and, and I spent quite a lot of time trying to see if there were... Um, uh, if there was footage of her online where she was just speaking before Harry. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there's a lot of her acting, which isn't the same. And there's a lot of her being interviewed, which isn't the same either, really. Right. Um, but I couldn't see any particular evidence that she was using this pattern prior to this. But then mm-hmm. you might only use it for a particular kind of interaction. So um, so tricky to know exactly what was going on there. But it is seen as a, a very British sounding intonation Interesting. pattern. It's interesting because I I was thinking about um, Spanish and when I lived in Spain, I felt like I was picking up some of the nuances of the accent while living in Andalusia, for example. But then when I moved to Mexico and I was speaking Spanish in Mexico, I was picking up some of the nuances of accent in Mexico. So I think in a way I'm thinking this is something that we do unintentionally, perhaps. Mm, Right. mm, mm. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think it's a subconscious thing. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, I think there are definitely people who do it on purpose. Huh. Um, I, I, that must I mean, be cognitively demanding, I guess, uh, to be yes, doing that. But, you know, if, if you're strongly motivated to do this for a particular reason, right. um, then you can have coaching um, from speech coaches to um, produce things in a particular way. So, uh, I mean, you know, the, the great rhetorical speakers, um, many right. of them may have done this naturally, but they would have rehearsed things um, usually over and over again before they produced them. Um, but it's it's not out of the question that somebody might go to a speech coach and say, um, you know, I need help sounding this more persuasive. What should I do? And they'll mm-hmm. say, well, you know, in order to do this, you can use this sort of pattern. Um, and that will have this effect on an audience rather than using that sort of pattern, which has a different sort of effect. Um, And it wouldn't surprise me at all if there were people out there who took advantage of that. And in fact, you know, I mean, the the famous example in in um, in British politics is Margaret Thatcher, who um, who took speech lessons. I don't even know if it was elocution, um, but it was lessons to make her voice sound more um more dominant um mm. because she was accused of sounding shrill and female voices come off badly in just about every way quite frankly um but she she, she lowered her pitch range um and her pitch range was much more narrow um and and, and she spoke more slowly um if you kind of watch footage of her over time and that sort of way of speaking is much more authoritative. And, you know, clearly she she went and had some lessons on this. So if you are mm. that strongly motivated person, then there's no reason why you can't have lessons to do this. Um, mm-hmm. But there are some people who are just naturally gifted speakers and some people who are um, very aware of the power of speech, like Winston Churchill was supposed to be, for example. Right. Um, and know what to say at the right time in order to get a reaction that will, um, you know, bring things together or tear things asunder. 
So, yeah. Interesting. Is that something that is regional? Like you were talking about accents and way, way of speech. Is the power of persuasion or speech persuasion kind of more universal, more general, or would that also be regionally specific? Um, well, I can only really speak for the UK, but in, in the UK, there are accents that people think are ignorant sounding. Really? So if you, if you adopt one of these, or if you have one of these accents, it doesn't matter whether you are the most informed person in the world. If you speak a truth using this accent, you, you are much like, less likely to have that accepted than if wow. somebody with a more standard sounding accent speaks that hmm. same truth. Um, right. So uh, there's definitely that going on in, in Britain. I mean, I, there's, there's some of this in the States, although I'm not an, an, an expert yes. in, on um, other varieties particularly, but I mean, um, for example, varieties from um, the South are <laughs> was um, just considered, there. you know, to have a particular sort of um, <laughs> stereotypical um, personality yeah. than others and you know if you've got the sort of brooklyn accent then that has a connotation and so on um which is very different from um i don't know the sort of network englishy sort of accent that you get so um it's it's it can be the case that if you are using a particular sort of accent your views can be discounted just because you're not speaking it in an accent that's considered to be authoritative um and uh, I mean, that's that's highly problematic for me. It is. You know, it's interesting talking about is this conscious? Is it not conscious? Do we change, you know, one of your videos? I think I forget if it was you or an audience member asked about chameleonisms. And I thought that was a really interesting term. And I'm learning a lot about my grandmother, actually, mm. listening to this conversation, because on my mother's side, she was Scottish. But I only knew her as my Scottish Canadian grandmother, so in a Canadian context. And to me, she had this thick, and she did, really super, super thick Scottish accent to me. Uh, but my mom, my mom was like, no, no, no, no, no. You have to hear her when she goes to Scotland. And then we took a family trip, and we showed up in Scotland, and I couldn't understand anything that she was saying. She laid on this, and I don't, don't know if it was intentional or it was just she was back in her environment, but her Canadian Scottish accent yeah, yeah. was very, I guess watered down and then her scottish scottish accent was incredibly thick and as a 10 year old kid i had no idea what she was saying anymore oh, yeah yeah I, I don't think um when you say she laid it on that kind of assumes that it was conscious but it probably wasn't it was just that mm. she's in this environment right. and that's the way you speak when you're in this environment with these people so um you know it's it's it's something that we do unconsciously but also it can be conscious um mm. so i don't want to say that people never do it consciously because that's not not the case um but you know we we are, we tend to be uh social beings we want to get on with people uh, we want to get what we want out of people um and you know whether again that's that's a sort of super conscious thing or not we we we need to have our needs met um, and often in order to do that, we'll change the way that we speak um, without even realizing we're doing it because we've worked out our brain somewhere subconsciously has worked out that if we say, thing in a uh, say something in a particular way to a particular group, we're less likely to get our needs met, whatever those needs are, whether emotional or physical or, or whatever, um, or transactional than if you say it in a different sort of way. So, um, 
but yeah, it's. Uh, mm. I, I guess it varies. If there's a continuum, they'll be you know extremely conscious, changing the way that you speak, and less mm. conscious, and and anywhere in between. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Howdy, people. This is Ajita, and I'm from India. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learning Your English podcast. Namaste. मेरा नाम अजीता है और मैं भारत से हूँ आप सुन रहे हैं टीचर टॉकिंग टाइम आपका एकमात्र पॉडकास्ट जहाँ आप अंग्रेजी सीख सकते हैं northwest um, of England and um, she had this awful awful experience of going back to her family home and they rejected her because they said she didn't sound like she fitted in with them anymore so wow. she clearly found it quite difficult to switch back um, into her home accent um, because that they they basically just rejected her and and I remember um, this was when we graduated, she, she went back home and, uh, you know, because she was looking for work and so on. And, and she just had to move elsewhere because she couldn't stay with them because they had s- such a strong reaction to her. And that comes up in the film Educating Rita, actually. I don't know if you know that film with no, uh, Julie no. Waters and uh, uh, Michael Caine, um, where um, I think she has a Liverpool accent um, and she studies with the Open University in the film. And everything about her changes, including her accent, and she just doesn't fit in anymore with the group of people that she um, that she lived with originally, her family, and and they mm-hmm. kind of reject her. So it's sort of interesting, and and speech is is part of that um, mm. to some extent. So you do get people who are able to much much more able to sort of flip in and out to a greater extent. Uh, but even so, I mean, you know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if your grandmother, um, when when she went home and was using features that you couldn't understand, I wouldn't be surprised if the people that she was speaking to actually thought she didn't sound like them anymore, because you get that comment as well. They think they sound, you know, perfectly, perfectly like they always did. And in fact, well, no, you don't sound that anymore. You sound, sound <laughs> yeah. kind of different. So She's yeah. she's in between and, and nowhere, basically, right? Yeah. Do, do well to some extent, but, you know, she's happy uh, with that. It's okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. Oh wow! There's a lot to unpack here. Edu- educating Rita is that the name? Um, educating Rita, yeah, is the okay. film. I mean, it's not specifically about accent, but accent plays a part in it. No, no, it's a really, good. really good film, actually. It's worth it. We can add seeing. this to the show notes for sure. 
Um, yeah. Well, I would like to pivot a little bit to talk about your ITEFL talk, because I feel like mm-hmm. you were talking a bit about tribalism, which is something related to the book, but I don't want to know if I want to get into that yet. Okay. Um, belonging to groups and things like that. But I wanted to talk more about your ITEFL talk, which also mm-hmm. connects to your work with um, teacher education, specifically um, a okay. course that you teach on. Um, I think it's the title is Essential Phonetics. And a lot of teachers and Andrew and I, we have been we have learned your English and we have been working with a lot of teachers from all over the world. And we find that a lot of teachers feel very reluctant to teach pronunciation in the classroom. So mm-hmm. perhaps you could tell us more about ways in which teachers can actually bring phonetics into the classroom in ways which are, again, accessible, user-friendly, and that actually will help students um, move away from this idea that is so pervasive in our industry that you have to sound like a native speaker. And I always Mm -hmm. ask my students, but which native speaker do you want to Mm -hmm. sound like? Well, exactly. Yes, yes, yeah. do you mean the, the the the plenary that I did for IATF yes. where we were looking at intonations yeah. on? Okay, so a um, bit of a story behind that. So the um, the president at the time, uh, Marjorie Rosenberg, she said, uh, um, "I really want to have you as a speaker, and I want you to bring in um, your, your sort of musical background as well." So that's why there's all oh. this kind of singing going on in it. I, yeah. I think the I, I'm not sure that the one that they published. I, I don't think they could actually publish the songs because. Of copyright issues um so i don't i don't know if they're on there but um it, she wanted me to uh bring some of the songs in that we do with students on the summer course in english phonetics at ucl mm. um because it's just kind of making it fun really um so i was talking about that but the um the the the talk was largely focusing on on intonation and teaching intonation and what sort of features of intonation were um useful to be taught and so on um, and moving away from trying to teach people to emulate um, native speaker models, like you say, which native speaker, um, and um, and focus more on things which are of communicative importance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the the it, it's generally accepted that the most communicatively important thing from the point of view of intonation is where the focus is is placed so the focus Mm. placement of of the of the utterance Um, because the listener is listening for that to be able to um understand uh, the the meaning of the speaker and quite frankly so um it was sort of looking at that really Um, I mean, I, I do more sort of teacher education these days. I don't do teacher training anymore. And I haven't, mm-hmm. um, I haven't done um, traditional pronunciation teaching for a very, very long time. So, I mean, there are people out there who are much better qualified to talk about this than me um, because I, I really haven't done it for such a long time. I'm kind of more about um, teaching students on RMA to understand the patterns so that they then can take that and um, decide how best to deal with it in in their classrooms right. um but you know there's lots of discussion about ways into pronunciation including things like um just just small things if you're if you're teaching a grammar point then make sure that you bring in the pronunciation issues as well there so that it's sort of taught together rather than being a separate sort of thing which makes it seem separate which it isn't um, so i mean a, a an example would be 
um, if you're teaching plurals or past tenses, for example, then, you know, if you've got a word like start, then you add id to it. So you add an extra syllable. So that sort of thing. So mm-hmm, working mm-hmm. with um, working with that, getting people to recognize patterns and, and these sorts of things. Um, and I, I've seen some really interesting work with um, students. Um, what's the word? Modeling isn't the right word. So. Um, taking a famous sitcom so at the time it was friends so this is a little bit uh-huh. old now because friends is quite old um but listening to the dialogue and trying to recreate it um and there and, and in doing so um understanding the patterns in order mm. to be able to recreate the dialogue so it's kind of a mirroring thing i guess um so you know um deciding that you're going to work on for example focus placement and then getting the getting the students to listen to this dialogue and hear where the different focuses are, and then try to recreate that and and that sort of thing. So um, bringing in bringing in some fun, I think, mm-hmm. um, and also that there are loads of technological tools out there that you can that you can use with with students depending on their level of um, technological awareness. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, from computer programs like Prat, which you have to learn how to use and interpret, um, to materials produced by um, my colleague Paul Hancock, for example, who does um, a lot of stuff that you can get that is on an iPad and, and uh, you know, working through things like that. Um, so uh, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave the actual lesson content to the experts because that's not... Um, that's not okay. something that I deal with particularly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I appreciate that teachers find it very um, challenging to teach these things. But there are some things which are really useful and important and other things which um, are kind of nice to have in some ways, but don't really matter. Um, but it's, it's the sort of persuading, persuading people away from having students sound like whatever native speaker they're choosing to actually being able to communicate in a world where, I mean, you know, it's, there are more people who use English as a second and a foreign language than there are who use English as a first language. Mm-hmm. So um, recognising that you're, you're equally likely to be speaking to somebody from, um, I don't know, Ghana or Thailand or um, Japan or Hong Kong or you know somewhere in the USA or South America than you are um, to a native speaker in English because it's such a widespread language. So we really need to be thinking about um, what it is that's important for international communication um, rather than having students focus on trying to attain some native likeness. Um, that, but that's uh, that's the kind of general opinion I think of of the. Um, of the pronunciation and second language phonology um, academic response, if you like, to this, that uh, right. English is English has a particular sort of status and we need to be thinking about that. That doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't, that if somebody wants to sound like a particular native speaker, that they shouldn't work towards that if they want. Right. We're not saying you, you, should, you mustn't do this. Um, we're just saying that there are um, priorities and uh, by focusing on the priorities, it actually takes away some of the stuff that might be difficult to teach and isn't actually that important from the communicative point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah but yes i'm i'm i i think you'll you'll probably find there are much better people out there who can talk about materials development than i can so i'm, I'm going to stop there um no this is good this is good because um i was actually thinking andrew i don't know if you remember but we had a guest in the podcast and he was actually talking about research that he did with a group of chilean students and he used I think they were business students and he used mm -hmm. basically, I think it was, um, he lives in Montreal. I forget his name now. It will come to me. But he basically used Jane. He Sato, used, right? Um, Sato, yes. Masatoshi Sato, mm -hmm. yes. Thank you. So he basically used Chilean entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs in Chile who spoke English as models mm -hmm. for those students to actually, um, you know, someone to aspire to, to sound like, a person from their own cultural yeah. background, from their yeah, own educational yes. background, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, um, yeah that, that's yeah, that sounds reasonable. Because I think this is the question with pronunciation, accentism, etc., and in a global English context of you know how do we as practitioners or as teachers or even as educators go about this, and is it even possible to go about it, or? if I'm interpreting correctly, Jane, is more about equipping our own students to empower them to find models that they want to sound like or that they can, instead of me and my own, you know, my own bias of my own language of my own accent and saying, oh, this is how you should say it, not like this. Instead of saying, well, who do you want to sound like? Where is a model that you can follow? Watch them speak, find a video and kind of equipping yeah, themselves to, yeah. to find that kind of the internet, internet's a wonderful thing and can be a terrible thing, but in this case, it's probably a, a great resource. Oh, I should just say, um, the, the, the, my colleague that I was talking about is Mark Hancock. If I said Paul Hancock, that's because I know a guitarist who's called Paul Hancock. So sorry, Mark, it's Mark Hancock. I probably Mark did Hancock, say Mark. We're, but, gonna, we're going yeah, to, uh, he's written extensively um, on pronunciation. Uh, absolutely, yes, like yes. Yeah. And has won various awards So um, for his materials. So definitely worth a look. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, I think your your identity as a speaker is important. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, there are people who don't want to sound like British or American speakers. They want to sound like themselves, you know, speaking English in the way that they speak it. I mean, much like I do, much like you guys do, you know, we're, mm. we're speaking English in a way that that's us. So why shouldn't everybody be afforded this? As long as you're clearly spoken and you are understood and, and you have the skills to be able to adapt the accommodation skills to do that and also um, I mean being being trained to listen analytically is is really useful as well mm. uh, and there are some approaches to pronunciation teaching um, that use something called um, high variability phonetic training um, okay. which is where rather than you know having one model for something um, you're trained by listening to a variety of speakers producing whatever it is that you want the learners to focus on. Um, and then they get used to hearing the same thing in a variety of different, you know, spoken in a variety of different ways. Um, mm. I mean, it's a very kind of particular sort of methodology. It's largely used in research, um, but it's very successful. They found that um, it's quite successful to train learners like this and that um, when they then go out into the real world in inverted commas, that they're used to listening to a variety of people, and so they're better able to cope with right. that sort of thing, you know. And that that seems really sensible. I mean, it's not the case that most people are going to be using English in a in a vacuum. Um, I mean, right. there are instances where people are doing it as a subject that you have to pass, like maths mm -hmm. or something. You do you do get that still. Um, but for a lot of people, they want to be able to communicate effectively in English. And in order to right. do that, you have to be ready for all of these voices and you have to be able to understand um, 
how to um, get what you want out of the communication. So how to communicate effectively yourself and how to ask people to say something again and so on in, um, in order to be able to um, cooperate um, in the conversation, I think. So there's, there's lots of that sort of stuff that comes up in, um, in pronunciation teaching as well, the mm. whole accommodation skills sort of thing, right? Um, which is, you know, another, another interesting area. Before we jump into the book, Jane, I actually wanted to ask you a question, and I think this is a good way for us to to pivot into into um, into the book that you have you mm-hmm. have written. I'm thinking about accents because I haven't finished reading the book. It's it's an interesting read, and I, I I'm the kind of slow reader because I read, I take notes. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I want to research more. Um, this, um, but in terms of accent, even when a person has a so-called heavy accent it doesn't necessarily mean that they are unintelligible. And you were talking about successful, a successful yeah. communicator. He's intelligible. He is able to, be, to make himself or herself understood and also yeah. understand yeah. others. So my question to you then is, who carries the responsibility or the burden here? Is intelligibility a property of the listener and not the speaker, or is it both? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, I have to say, I've not really thought about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think you know the the onus has to be on the on the speaker to um, produce speech um, which is as clear as possible, whether it's spoken with um, one accent or another. Um, so you know you, you you need to work to um, be able to produce things in a way which are clearly understood. Um, but I don't think that that takes responsibility away from the listener necessarily if you're you know it's it's a negotiation isn't it mm-hmm. um so yeah and i mean one of the um one of the things about the lingua franca core which i'm sure you're aware of um which is uh jennifer jenkins jennifer jenkins um, yes theory yeah um is that um it's not just the case that learners should be um using features that help to make them better understood in international settings. Um, But uh, people who are traditional native speakers should be thinking about this as well. Um, So, I mean, you know, there are there are things like uh, I mean, I'm a British English speaker and I don't pronounce my R um, in all positions because of my accent. But the, the that model actually suggests that you do do it, because if there's an R in the spelling, you know, um, it's it's underlying, so we should be saying it. So, I mean, this, this is not something that I think I would do unless I could spot that somebody hadn't understood me, and then I might want to hyperarticulate it. Um, but it's certainly something to be aware of. So, this might be an issue because the speaker hasn't hasn't heard that. Um, so, it's I, I think that the I mean the the burden of responsibility really on in any um, conversation is kind of on both of the people taking part mm-hmm. in it um, because you know you you need to um you need to be able to speak in a way that can be understood and you also need to be willing as a listener to understand the person um, and in some cases um we've seen um instances of, of prejudice for example where the, the listener refuses to understand the speaker because they have a particular accent not because right. they're not necessarily clearly spoken and we saw that with some research into um, call centers for example where um, uh, many uk banks moved their call center operations out to places like um, india um, and other places in south asia 
And the response they got from some British speakers was, um, well, I don't understand this person because they're speaking in this accent, not because, and they didn't even bother trying. So, I mean, to me, that's not acceptable. If the person's generally not clearly spoken, then some work is needed. Um, But uh, if they are, you know, on both sides, I mean, you might have a very strong um, British accent of one type or another, which means you're difficult to understand. But I mean, you know, um, usually you'll find a common ground somewhere. You, you're not like your um, mm-hmm. Canadian, Scottish Canadian grandmother. You know, you'll speak <laughs> one way in some context and another way in another. And That's you'll right. know when that is and you'll be able to change. So, you know, people often do that. Um, it always took me a few days when we went to Scotland to adjust my ears, but I got yeah, there to yeah, accommodate. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> No, it, I mean, it's it's supposed to be the case that it takes about four seconds to start processing a new voice. Really? Um, huh. Because we just have to get used to the patterns of the voice. Um, and this is uh, this is supposed oh, yes. to be why when you when you telephone somebody um, and it's someone you don't know or if you don't know them, we have all of these things that you say at the start of a phone call. You know, you, you, I mean, in, in the UK, you, you used to pick up the phone and say the number. And that would right. be enough time for the listener to tune into your voice, um, right. you know, assuming that it, it didn't have a, um, an accent that made it really difficult to understand. But, you know, when, when you've been in a context long enough, you start to recognize the features because the brain, it's very interested in patterns. And if there are mm. patterns there, it will start to recognize them and it may take more or, or less time depending on how complex the patterns are. But, you know, from a processing point of view, it takes us a little while just to kind of gauge somebody's voice before we can start understanding them just generally in conversations, let alone bringing four in seconds. Voices. Yeah. Four seconds. Apparently I can't remember where I read that. I mean, this is something that I read years and years ago when I was doing my first. No, degree. it's, it's true. It's true. Cause I'm, I'm reminded of the research of John field, John field, John field, John? Mm-hmm. Yes. John field. Yes. Yeah. John yeah. field talks a lot about this. He talks about like before you actually ask your students to listen to something and take notes or, or answer questions, yeah, yeah. you get, you let them listen to something for about 10 to 15 seconds just to yeah. get them to tune in to the voice. Yeah. Like yes. to basically, yeah. you know, uh, that uh, now it connects. There you go. Yes. That was a, yeah. that was a no, light bulb moment for me. There. So, you know, if, if you're, if you're a, a native speaker, if we're using that term, if you're a native speaker of a language and you're listening to another native speaker, then four seconds. If you're a non-native speaker, then maybe you need more time because the patterns are all very, very different. So yeah, that kind of makes sense. Hello, everyone. Here's Sandra from Brazil. I'm here to say that the Learn Your English membership for teachers is an amazing opportunity to get together with other teachers from all over the world, read about different topics, and discuss. It's been an amazing journey. There are webinars. There is a lot of material which is available for us to learn about various topics. I can't wait to learn even more. Hey everyone, my name is Azat Bostash and I'm from Turkey. You are listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Hey, merhaba arkadaşlar. Ben Azat Bostaş, Türk'üm. Şu anda Teacher Talking Time grubunun hazırlamış olduğu İngilizce Öğreniyorum podcast'ini dinliyorsunuz. Okay, let's jump into the book because I want to talk about the book. I haven't finished the book, but the book is great so far. So those of you who are listening to the podcast, oh, Jane, the book, Your Voice Speaks volume. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I wanted to talk more about your writing process because I, I like writing. And I'm always interested in, in people's writing process. So 
what does it look like for you? Like when you were doing the writing sessions for the books, did it tend, they look like, you know, you would sit and write down like pages and pages, or when you sit down, is it an empty page? Is it like bits and pieces that you've noted after like having a glass of wine? It's like, oh, I had an idea. I'm going to write about this. Like <laughs> what is actually in front of you when you start writing? After a glass of wine, I think that's probably dangerous. Incidentally, if you could hear my cat, we're, we're not murdering him. He makes this awful noise. He's, um, he's 19 years old. And he, he is as deaf as a post and he just likes to wander around the house oh. yelling. So um, I've nice. had people kind of rush out of the room who were staying going, what's somebody doing to the cat? Nothing. He's just he's just bored. Anyway, so um, he, he may come and visit. But yeah, he's, he's much too old to jump up. He doesn't jump up. What's, what's his name? Um, his name is Ozzy. Ozzy. Um, yeah, okay. he's a sweetie. But anyway, he's. Uh, yeah. So my writing process. Oh, boy. Because um, I mean, like, what was the. The genesis of the book. When did it start? It, it's kind of um, it's kind of a book I've wanted to write for some time because um, I I'm involved in uh, well as as you'll know if you've read the book and incidentally get the paperback the most recent edition because there are some oh. corrections. Um, so if you want to know what the corrections are, I can I can tell you. But there's a massive <laughs> error on page fourteen, which I'm just horrified at. I probably well. didn't even notice. <laughs> no, no, a lot of people haven't. That's the thing. There's only one reviewer that actually picked it up, and I thought, oh goodness me, no. Anyway, um, yeah. So um, the the paperback was out um, at the end of July. So get that one. It's cheaper, and two, it has corrections. Um, long time, and I've I've been involved in. Well, obviously, I'm asked about accents all the time. Um, I'm asked about um, uh, forensic speaker comparison because I've um, in the past I've worked in in that sort of area. I've worked, um, as I say, with um, children with speech and language deficits. I've <laughs> I've worked with. Um, <laughs> he must want food. I don't know why he's still here. Um, I wanted to do a kind of general introduction um to phonetics and speech production um which i hope is fairly straightforward um mm -hmm. but you know it's a technical area so the first chapter is all a bit technical but after that then you've got everything you need to understand what comes next from a phonetic point of view and i also wanted to write something about why we've got all of these different accents in um in england specifically but you know in in the uk um and yeah that it's and why we've got this tribalism um because people feel very strongly about their accents and they also feel very strongly about the people's accents um and we have all of these different connotations that go with accents so like i was saying if you if you speak a truth in a particular accent, then it may be the case that you're less likely to be believed than if you speak it in a different one. So if you speak it in an accent which is closer to a standard, then people are more likely to um, uh, respect your view, um, which is, I mean, it's, it's shocking. It really is shocking. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we do have uh, we have lots of accents. Uh, it is tribal. People didn't move around very much. We had invasions from all over the place. Um, we we had um, kings, regional kings, and so on. Um, and, uh, uh, and I guess up until probably the 1950s, um, if you look at an accent map from the 1950s, and there's one of these in in my book for um, which which sound is it? Is it R? I think. Mm -hmm, the um, CR, yeah. Yeah, the, the rotic, roticity. 
Um, and you compare that with a map from around 900 um, when we've had the Viking invasions, there are boundaries on those maps which match. So mm. you can see that where there are areas of roticity and non-roticity in England, they match practically exactly with the areas that were settled by the Vikings or various Saxon tribes or um, the, um, the people who were in Britain before the Saxons arrived, all of those different sorts of areas. So it, it, people just didn't really move around very much, which means you get this huge amount of loyalty mm -hmm. um, to a particular um, region, to a particular accent. You can identify who's in your social group because of the way that they speak. You know who the people are who are a threat because they sound different. Um, and uh, it's, it's still something that is there today. Um, it's, it's, it's there now. And mm -hmm. I mean, we, we had, um, we had the industrial revolution. So we had lots of urban accents come along and they were judged to be, um, unattractive because they're kind of associated with manual work and all of this sort of thing. Um, industrial manual work as opposed to farm work, which sounds very different. Um, so, uh, and, and also that the media hasn't helped because they perpetuate stereotypes. Um, right. And in one of my chapters, um, which is on professional and performance voices, um, I interview, among other people, a, um, a voice coach um, who basically says, you know, if, if a, a, a film or, or a, a British film or a television programme decides they want somebody who's kind of funny but untrustworthy, they will pick somebody with a particular accent. Because Interesting. Because of the connotations. Yeah. So, um, so we, we do have these connotations. And uh, it's, it's largely because of the history of the way that things developed. And so, uh, I mean, my, my suggestion is that with um, received pronunciation, it's kind of, it's a social accent because it's not, although we tend to think of it as people from kind of posh people from London, that sort of area. Right. Actually, it's an accent which is all over the UK, um, spoken by upper class people. So there are people in Scotland who have RP accents, people in Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland and, and Ireland that have RP accents, people in various different places in England that have RP accents, in Wales that have RP accents and so on. So the accent is a social accent rather than a regional right. one. Um, and my suggestion for this is that um, because it's associated with elites, that it's something that may have its genesis um, in the Norman invasions, because um, the only people that sort of traveled around the country uh, were people that had the money to do so. And they tended to be royalty and, um, you know, people who were in a position to govern areas. Um, and so you'd get these, um, and most of them were French speaking. So you had an entirely different language that was spoken by these people. But then eventually, as educated elites, usually educated at public schools, and again, because you have the money for it, then we've got this accent that um, arises um, mm. in the kind of, I, I don't know, it's public school pronunciation. That's what Daniel Jones called it. Um, so certainly, you know, by the beginning of the 20th century, you've, you've got this accent and then we hear it on 
things like um, the news on the radio and so on. And people who have this accent are considered to be authoritative because they're wealthy and they govern and their justices of peace and all this thing. So you end up with that that kind of accent. So um, so I, I wanted to write about that stuff and I wanted to write about my personal experience of it. Um, and so I pitched this idea. It's actually David Crystal who put me in touch with oh. um, a commissioning editor from Oxford University Press. And I pitched this idea and she said um, the way that I pitched it was a bit too personal. Um, mm. So I could have elements of my story in there and there are elements of my story in there. But uh, also um, I should uh, I should I should make it more sort of general about the population of of England rather than you know focusing right. so much on myself so there's there's kind of bits of me in there experiences that I've had that that speak to certain things like the fact mm-hmm. that if somebody um if if a, a male speaker has a low-pitched voice you assume that they are large <laughs> there's a funny, I don't want to I don't want to spoil the fun here but uh there is a there's a very funny story in the book and I think you were talking about like a colleague that you said that his voice didn't really match his yeah no it was uh, it was a boyfriend of mine at the time yeah so oh. um there's yeah there's a there's the, there's a story where um I are was, we allowed to talk uh, about that story jane like is he gonna be yeah hurt? no it's it's, yeah, it's, it's fine okay. yeah I, I, okay I, I haven't been in touch with him for ages so nobody needs to know who he is but um yeah it was I, I was I was at college and and uh, and I I had a, a boyfriend at the time who um who had a particular sort of voice it was very very low pitched voice and uh, I was on the phone to this uh, the boyfriend and um one of my friends came along and sort of grabbed the phone off me at one point and was kind of talking to them um and they were speaking back and then she was like mm, I see okay um it sounds really sexy sort of thing and so I I, okay you know so later on I I showed um I showed her a picture of of boyfriend this is when we had photos it's like "Hmm, this is him and she's like oh (laughs) what are you expecting you know I I think he's very sexy it's clearly not her type but you know just by the person's voice she was expecting this kind of rugby player type you know, American right. football, huge bloke, big, you know, tall and all this sort of thing. He was quite tall, actually, but he was quite sort of lanky and um, not not particularly physically built, um, broad shouldered or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And she, she was kind of she was expecting something very different from the way that this right. person spoke. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, there's a there's another thing, another story in there about um I can't remember. I think it's Ronnie Cray. So the the Cray twins were a notorious um, a couple of gang leaders, if you like, in in in London. And um, uh, an actor was talking about having to portray one of the brothers on screen. Um, and he went and spoke to this brother in prison, and and he said he was really surprised because the um, the criminal chap. Um, had a really high pitched voice and he wasn't expecting it. Oh. Um, and you can't, you, you, you don't, you expect somebody who's sort of criminal has this really sort of gruff sound of voice like that. And apparently yeah. he's, he's very high pitched. So <laughs> we, we do, we, we see people and we have expectations about how they're going to sound. 
and we yes. hear people and we have expectations of how they're going to look. So it's really interesting how the voice... Is that is that a cultural prejudice? Is that a historical prejudice, going back to what you're saying about the Vikings? Is that something that's just from the media? Like, where do we get that? Um, I, I think it's... No, I think it's physical. I mean, it may well be something from the media, but I think it's physical as well because um, the the larger you are, the more, the more likely, uh, I mean, clearly not that, but the more likely you are to have a large larynx. Um, and if you're, a, if you're a male speaker and you have a large larynx, then you're going to have a lower voice. So we kind of, it's, it's often the case that large, um, tall, broad people have lower pitched voices Mm. purely from a physical point of view but you know everyone's different and it's not the case that this is going to be this is going to be what happens for everybody but we see somebody and we sort of assume that they're going to sound a particular way just by looking at them physically and it's it's, uh yeah it's fascinating and you know there've been there've been studies which have have uh, have shown um, i think this was something that was done with um, american high school students where they um, they had a, a group of students that listened to, uh, I can't remember exactly what the study was, but they had a group of students that listened to some speakers and they were shown images um, huh. of the speakers. And if they were shown images of, um, uh, of a, a white person, they were more likely to say they were intelligible than if they were shown images of somebody who was um, clearly not a white Caucasian right um person so uh, so we we we just we we see people or we hear people and we automatically have expectations about them and all of that stuff um you know we we get really interesting effects if we mix it up and um and try to see how people are perceived so yeah Mm. so there's some of that in in there as well and uh um, yeah. So, um, but you asked about my writing process. Um, haha. Yes. <laughs> I'm not getting off that yes. lightly. Um, what, I, what's my writing process like? I mean, you know, when you write a book, you have to produce um, an outline and you have to do all this stuff about marketing, what competitors there are, how it sits in the market, all of that sort of thing. Um, but you have to produce a kind of outline of the contents of the book and then you have to produce a sample chapter and it goes off for review. Mm-hmm. Um, so just sort of sitting down and working out what, what I wanted to have in it, um, was part of the process. And then for writing, I mean, I, I did, um, I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of the kind of research where you go and you read things or you make a mental note about something like you were saying, I was kind of bookmarking mm-hmm. YouTube videos when things came up or, or articles in the newspaper that I knew I wanted to mention, putting that somewhere so that it was in a place that I could find it easily. Um, and then um, working out what I wanted to say. But I, I think to, to some extent, um, because I'm used to writing materials for, um, um, for my classes for university, um, some of it came from that really, came from those mm. sort of narratives. So thinking about how you present something um, in a way that um, gives people lots of examples so that they can understand how certain things work uh, mm-hmm. or my take on how certain things work or what research says about how certain things work. Um, and, um, and one of the reviewers that I had actually mentioned that um, I've won a national teaching award in the UK. There's lots of people that have won them. Um, but nice. you know, part of the reason that I've won this is because I'm an excellent teacher in higher education. And I think that actually helped a lot writing it because I'm always thinking about how can I explain this better? 
Um, how can I give you an example show so that you know what it is I mean? Um, mm-hmm. You know, how much evidence do I have to bring in here? Um, how much can I have that's hypothetical, you know, you know, based on real events, but actually not not the actual event itself and changing the names and so on. Um, and, you know, I interviewed people. So for the performance voices one, I interviewed um, some uh, radio personalities and uh, for the one on um, transgender voice, I, I interviewed. some. Yes, transgender I haven't gotten to that chapter. So <laughs> it's there. Um, chapter yeah, six, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I wanted to ask people um what they mm. thought and um about all of that and the transgender stuff is is just i i find it fascinating um and, and also you know again if somebody if if you see someone and they open their mouth and, and produce something that sounds like um it's from a gender you're not expecting let's put it that way right. um then it makes it very difficult for them to be the be the person they want to be because they're perceived so differently even if they look mm-hmm. so you know it's it's a really really fascinating area um and i think it's yeah. the, it's the title of the book too jane because um i really like the title your your voice speaks volume and there's a quote in the book where you basically talk about this unconscious linguistic bias and i quote you exactly mm-hmm. here the moment you open your mouth and you utter that first phrase Conclusions are drawn, decisions are made. And oh, I think you've oh. spoken a little bit about those conclusions and decisions that are made. Uh, perhaps maybe why did you choose the title Your Voice Speaks Volumes? Um, Is it based I, on that quote? I didn't. I you didn't? didn't. <laughs> no. oh. this, was, this was chosen by the commissioning editor. Um, oh, I, I had something okay. different, which I'm not even going to tell you because uh, it's not because I'm embarrassed about it, but I, just <laughs> I don't think it works as well. Um, but no, she said, I think we need something, uh, we need something different. And she said, what about this? And I said, mm. you know, that's great. That, that, that is. is really, oh. really good. Um, and so yeah, this, this is why we have commissioning editors, you know, they know what right. makes a good title. <laughs> so I can write a research paper and put a title on it. Um, you know, whatever it's a research paper, people might read it. Some people might read it. Some people might not read it, but you know, um, but if you're, if you're going to write a book, you need a title that's going to grab attention. Um, and uh, and this is what we have um, these very very clever people in in the publishing houses for. And yeah. I'm sure there are people who come up with their titles, but I thought this one was much better than anything that I could have come up with. Um, and uh, it, it's very clever as well. I think it is. Um, it is. And also the the way that they've done. I've, I've actually. I don't actually oh yeah, yeah. Let's see, but I've got it here. Oh, you have so, the hardcover there. Yeah. Yeah. This this is the hard book. And um, the, the the way that um, they've done this, they've used a different font for every um, every uh, word. I didn't even um, notice that. They did that. that on purpose because they're trying to sort of reflect variety, which I thought was good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, thought went into that um and it wasn't my thought so you know lots huh. of my thought in the book but the way that the way that that um uh, happened was yeah it wasn't it wasn't anything to do with me so thank you very much to um julia steer who's the commissioning editor um and if anybody is working with oup and working with julia then you'll you'll have a wonderful experience because she's great so yeah wow yeah i mean everyone if you're watching this if you're listening to this podcast we highly recommend um jane's book your uh, your voice speaks volumes. That leads into what I think is the perfect podcast question. Something that Mike, Leo, and I are very curious about, and that is, why can't men make their voices sound sexy? Yeah, this was um, uh, so. This was based on some research, again, not done by me, um, done by some other colleagues. But again, it's one of those things which is just really interesting, and um, it came to my attention because. 
there's a show, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure if they're broadcasting it anymore, but there's a show, uh, one of these kind of comedy panel show things on um, British television called Duck Quacks Don't Echo. And so what they do is they give a statement and then they get somebody to um, talk a bit about it. And then the panelists, who are all kind of comedians and personalities, kind of discuss this thing. Um, and it's based on the premise that a duck quack doesn't doesn't echo don't don't ask me about that I, I didn't watch that so I can't tell you whether it's true or not but anyway so um they got in touch with me because they found this paper that said men can't make their voices sound sexy and they just wanted um they just wanted uh, an expert so a phonetician to make a case for this talk about this and talk about why um why it was possible um possibly true and the research was based on the fact that um they had a group of men and a group of women, they're all heterosexual, um, and they asked, the, uh, they asked them to count to one to ten, I think it was, um, in a sort of normal way, which we call modal voice, just normally. Um, and then they asked them to do it in a dominant way, a confident way, an intelligent way, and um, an attractive way, as if you were trying to attract a mate. So they asked them to do that. Um, so count to one to ten. And obviously they need to choose something that is neutral from a language input point of view. So if you're saying, do you like chocolate, for example, some people find chocolate very sexy. So that's going to, you know, um, uh, and they gave them some notes. So, you know, the intelligent one, they said, is if you're presenting something at a at a academic conference and uh, th this sort of thing. Um, so they got I think they got 20 men and 20 women to do this. And then they asked listeners to decide how um dominant confident um attractive and um what was the other one intelligent the voices sounded so they got them to rate them and uh and what they found was that um women are able to make their voices or, or are judged when they're when they're making their voices sound more sexy when they were told to do this they are judged to have a sexier voice than when they were doing modal voice when they were just doing their normal voice so um whereas men were actually judged as less attractive <laughs> when they did it um so that the men could make their voices sound more dominant more confident and more intelligent but they couldn't make themselves sound sexy whereas the women huh. could make themselves sound more dominant confident intelligent and sexy but in some cases it was less so or for the other three parameters it was less right. so than the men but there was you know there was um, um this effect so i mean that's kind of interesting from the point of view of women are not judged to sound as authoritative or whatever as men confident mm. as men even though they they did make themselves they were rated to sound more confident than the mode of voice but kind of two things arise from that. So one is, is, the, is the question of what were the women doing to make their voices sound more sexy? And the second thing, which Andrew is <laughs> interested in, is why couldn't the men make themselves sound more sexy? Um, and so for, for the women, they found that what the women tended to do um, was lower their voices and make them sound more breathy. And this kind of voice is considered to be very sexy okay. and attractive. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've changed my accent a bit there as well. I've RP'd it up a little bit. But, um, you know, <laughs> even, even if I was doing it in a Marbeck type accent, it would still sound more sexy than my, my other accent. <laughs> um, so uh, they do that. And, and there's all sorts of things that are 
um, uh, that kind of go with that, um, including that uh, it sounds very calm, it sounds very nurturing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's something that mothers do to babies. A breathy voice sounds very kind of calming and soothing and so on. And so that's kind of um, taken as sounding um, sexy. And also it's, uh, it's I can't, I don't remember if it was this particular research or some other research that kind of allied those features of the voice with um, the health of the female. So really? if you had this kind huh. of voice, then you sounded more healthy and physically attractive, and therefore you were more likely to produce strong offspring. Okay. Right. So, they, so now we've gone there. The researchers said this is to do with evolution. It's actually, that, that's the main thing. So if you're a man, um, from an evolutionary perspective, your main role is hunter-gatherer, protecting the family, uh, you know, seeing off others, whether it's through being clever or being strong, this sort of thing, dominant and so on. That is your role. Whereas from an evolutionary perspective, the, the female's role is to bear the children, raise the children, nurture yeah. the family. So we've got different sorts of roles going That's on. That's very there. interesting. So men don't have any reason to make themselves sound sexy from a sexy voice point of view because the things that the women are looking for from an evolutionary perspective is a man who can provide um, and you know protect they're looking for that so they right. that was what the researchers put this down to so interesting i mean it was just fascinating that if the men tried to make the voices sound sexy they sounded less sexy the women weren't interested <laughs> in those voices um, and this kind of uh, matches things that you find on dating apps um, where, you know, women tend to go for men that have standard sounding type accents because these men, um, they are uh, considered, whether this is true or not, to be educated and intelligent and, you know, able to earn money, that sort of thing. Um, if you have one of these accents more than if you have an accent from um, a more sort of rural area where you're not considered to be somebody who's going to bring in a lot of money, therefore you're less of, in, of interest. You know, I mean, it's very, very transactional, and and wow. it's, you know, it, it's that that kind of thing. That's that's what they were putting it down to. Um, now you do get men who have very deep voices, but as I was saying before, people assume that if you have a deep voice, that you're physically quite strong and you're large, um, and that is something that's attractive to women from an evolutionary point of view. So yeah. All this stuff matches up. Yeah, I get it. We all have faces for radio. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Good face for radio. Yeah. So, um, no, it it was a really, really interesting piece of research. Um, And, you know, if you say this to people, they go, oh, no, of course, that's that's not, yeah, rubbish, that's rubbish. Um, But actually, um, a, a lot of our responses go back to this sort of basic instinct oh god that's another movie which i didn't mean to be saying um but anyway you know it goes it goes back to your sort of basic um needs as a human um and so you know it's not the case that we don't get women going out there being very high flyers and so on but it's less common than with men um and you know all of these things are kind of linked up together so the fact that um if women speak in a particular way they get much more um, uh, criticism than if men speak in a particular way, for example. Um, they get more criticism for things like um, creepy voice, this sort of voice like this, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. That's, that's, 
criticised among women, but men do it as well, and they don't seem to get anything like as much criticism. Um, and high-rising terminal, where you go up at the end like that, you know, um, that's that's also something that men and women do, my... but women get more criticism for it than men. So women are always at the kind of poor end of the stick, let's say, when that's it comes right. to being yeah. judged in terms of the way that they speak. And that, that's another thing in the book, looking at these sorts of yeah. things. And that, that's in that chapter, I think, actually. It talks mm-hmm. about these kind mm-hmm. of myths about language. Yeah. Um, and tries to debunk some of them. I don't know how successful it is, but you know, you can only put the evidence out there. It's interesting because I just want to circle back a little bit because that's about when we hear voices, our perceptions of them, and and our biological or otherwise reactions to those voices. But uh, you mentioned in the book, and you mentioned also in in a talk that we watched when you were at what's it called the the talk at Google, I think in two thousand yeah. the Google, Google one, talk, yeah. Mm-hmm. the Google yeah. talks. Yeah, they invited um, me to talk about the book. Yeah. And I don't know if this is circling back a little bit to that, to the transgenderism discussion. I don't know if it's specific to this, but you talked in that talk about what it means to have a voice that doesn't match who you are. Mm. And I thought maybe we just quickly dive into that because I think that's a very interesting notion because we've just finished talking about when we hear a voice, Mm. our reactions to it. Mm -hmm. But what does it mean to have a voice myself that I don't believe matches who I am? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this is. Again, it's it's a it's an interesting area. I mean, it's it's sort of a difficult area. Um, the, the the transgender thing is a difficult mm. area to for me to talk about because I'm not transgender, and I have uh, you know the only experience I have is from the people that I've spoken to and my friends and so on. Um, but right. uh, again, there are sort of physical changes at play here. So if if you are uh, be, be, be, bearing in mind that most people who transition are in adulthood when they do so. Um, if you are uh, female and you transition to male, um, then among the treatment, of course, is testosterone. And if you take testosterone, it causes your body to go through puberty, uh, male puberty. Um, and one of the um, one of the things that happens is that the voice changes in male puberty. So we know we talk about the uh, the male voice, the, it breaks. That's the word we use in um, in the UK. I'm not sure if it's the same everywhere, but we say, oh, his voice is broken, that sort of thing. And that means that there's been this spurt of growth because we know during teenage years, there are these spurts of growth um, and there'll be a spurt of growth in which the larynx largens because that's something that happens in, in adult males and, and also in females, but not to the same kind of extent. Um, so the larynx suddenly largens and the voice might sound a bit squeaky for a bit and then it sort of mm. settles down and so on. And then you've got this different sounding voice. Um, and, you know, I know people who say that they were choir boys when they were um, in the, when they were 10 or something. And then the voice changed and, and they weren't able to sing again. And some people are able to master it and others, others are not. But, you know, it has an effect on, on, on your voice. So if you're taking testosterone, this happens to you. Um, and there's a really interesting video. Um, uh, called uh, Six Months on Tea um, by Jacob Flores, I think is the name of the character. You can find him on, on YouTube. Um, and he, he, talks about, uh, he, go, he talks about a number of things that have happened to him um, over the six months that he started to take testosterone. And I think there are quite a lot of these videos on YouTube where they're talking about you know, what happens on tea and so on. Um, but I, I really liked this video. Um, and one of the reasons is there's a, there's a section where he just talks about his voice. So he says, uh, my name is Ryan Flores and this is my voice one month on tea. 
and then you go two months on tea, three months on tea, and it gets down to six months on tea, and the voice has has dropped considerably during that period. So if you are transitioning female to male, then the chances are your voice is going to lower in pitch significantly, and a lower voice is perceived as more masculine. Um, and one of the one of the things I read for the book was um, I think it was a master's thesis done by um, a student who was interviewing um, transgender speakers and they were saying things like, yeah, you know, on the phone, I'm never misgendered now because I have this lower voice and people just assume that that I'm a man, um, you know, and I've transitioned from female to male and and I sound male and it's great. And it's a real confidence booster if you sound um if you sound like you belong to the gender that you um, that you're inhabiting, um, for right, male right. to female speakers, um, this is more of a challenge because you can't reverse this. So once your once your larynx has done this, you're stuck with it. Hmm. So you can either have surgery on your larynx um, or um, speech therapy to help you change the way that you speak. But a lot of speakers um, and some of the ones I. Speak I spoke to found it really, really challenging um, to change the way that they spoke, um, particularly from a pitch point of view. But they were talking about um, different sorts of strategies that they would adopt to do this. And uh, and one of them was saying, for for example, they adopt a more breathy sounding voice because this is more female sounding. It tends to be something that's female. And they have strategies like they pick up the phone and say, hello, this is um, Jane. Uh, you know, hello, this is Mary, uh, so that you get a female, you get a female name, and then you know that you're speaking to a female person. Um, but even in that instance, um, there have been uh, misgenderings where, you know, because of the because of the voice, they are not taken to be the gender that um, that they're um, that they're in. So it's uh, it, it's a problem, and people do find that they are misgendered because of their voice. So, like I was saying, they might outwardly look um like a female um so we're talking about trans female cis cisgender is um mm. it's people who haven't transitioned and and trans or, or you know aren't interested in transitioning or whatever um but transgender is people who have trans, uh, transitioned from one gender to another um so you get transgender people who i mean you wouldn't look twice at them um in the street um whether you would or not anyway or you know you'd, you you wouldn't think anything about it but then they speak and their voice doesn't match your expectation to um a larger extent than uh you know even my friend who thought that my boyfriend was going to be this big guy um it's it's more of a culture shock than that because it i mean some people find trans people they just find the whole concept so appalling and so difficult Mm -hmm that they just don't want to be, uh, they don't want to engage with it. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so one of my, one of my friends that I interviewed in the book was saying that um, I, they, they're a, uh, they're a musical performer. They were singing, they were in a bar somewhere. And this person um, came over and said, um, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the, came over to her and said, I'm looking for the singer. Um, I just want to tell him how good he is or something like that. And uh, my friend said, uh, well, that, that's me and uh, I and my friend said you know that there are people who deliberately misgender you and there are people oh. who accidentally misgender you and and while both of them are upsetting um and you, you could use some other words there 
um, she is less upset by the ones that are not deliberate because she knows that people are not setting out to intimidate her or be, mm -hmm. you know, particularly difficult. Um, but still, that's a reflection on the fact that she doesn't sound female and that upsets her, which, which, which it would, you know, quite frankly. So um, I, I've seen uh, videos where extraordinary uh, extraordinary transformation. I can't speak now. Extraordinary transformations have taken place, um, and I've played them to my students. And I said, "Okay, listen to this person speaking," and they listen. And then I say, "Okay, now I'm going to play you this bit where that person is doing something a bit different." And it's a video of somebody who, um, outward appearance looks like a looks like a woman, um, is transgender, and um the video has this person kind of reciting i think it's the rainbow passage um just saying that um in the female voice um and then later on uh, there's a kind of discussion with them about their um their original voice if you like and the female voice and the students are just like completely open mouthed <laughs> by this because it's just so different right. um and you know the person is saying it's really difficult now for me to use this male voice it's really hard because I've trained myself to um, use something different. But they went through extensive speech therapy to do this. So it's not entirely impossible, but it is very difficult um, for some um, male to female um, trans mm -hmm. people to, to change their voices. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's upsetting if they get misgendered because of this, um, just as it's upsetting if they get misgendered for anything else. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it, it's a really, really interesting area um, and I actually have a, um, a, a transgender person that I'm following at the moment who's transitioning from female to male um, I'm taking regular recordings from them um, over oh. the sort of six months that they're starting to take testosterone and uh, and getting them to kind of um, doing interviews with them and getting them to kind of keep diary entries where they're talking about anything that happens to do with their voice and so on um as a sort of case study yeah but it's it's really it, it is really really interesting huh. um but it, it again it kind of shows how important the voice is for how somebody is perceived whether that's a good important or a bad important it's kind of showing that the the, the voice is so much part of somebody's identity um and that if it's not reflecting who you feel that you are then it can be a real problem so yeah, it's uh, it it was interesting talking to yeah. um, the the transgender people about that. I think we only have one final question. We have like a list of rapid fire questions that I like asking, but I feel like you've you've addressed a lot of them. So I'm going to give okay. you a last one here, which is the following: If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, of course, getting a message out to millions, billions of people in this planet. What would it say and why? It could be a few words, it could be a paragraph. Um, well, I think currently with the sort of work that I'm doing, it's um, listen to judge a person by what they say and not by the accent that they're saying it in. I, I think that would be it. That, because there's, um, I, I'm doing, uh, well, I'm involved in lots of discussion about accent prejudice at the moment. Um, and uh, very recently, um, there was an article in the um, in the Times, the Sunday Times newspaper, which was looking at a uh, a, a peer of the of the realm who has criticised a sports presenter 
um, who has a London type accent for um, poor uh, poor pronunciation, um, but actually they're criticising them for an accent feature. And mm. um, this this person is um, somebody who was um, an international uh, football player for the UK female team and knows all about football and all about all sorts of different kinds of sports and is absolutely ideally placed. Is a very sort of attractive, um, knowledgeable, enthusiastic um presenter uh, on on the BBC and people are laying into her because of of her accent and in this case laying into her because um he said it was because she wasn't um she wasn't pronouncing things properly but I mean to me understanding what this person has to say from the point of view of their expertise is so much more important than judging them on the fact that they have a particular kind of accent so I think that would be it Um, it would be judge a person by what they say and not the accent they say it in. That's it. I think that's a good way to uh, wrap this whole thing up. Those of you who are looking, I, I know summer is not over yet, but if you're looking for a good summer reading, as Jane has just mentioned, the paperback edition of her book with corrections on page 14, which I actually now have to go back and look at it because <laughs> <laughs> I completely missed that. <laughs> I don't judge. I don't judge a book by its spelling problems. So um, oh, no, anyway. no, this wasn't a spelling problem. This, this wasn't was a spelling. List, no, this was in the list of sounds, which is why it, the, uh, the text is fine, but there's an error in the list of sounds that I just did not notice, and okay. various people did not notice before it was published. So we have put it right in the paperback. So please, please get the paperback because it's correct. There you go. Uh, but if you want to, if go. you want to laugh and you understand what you're looking at, then get the back. <laughs> but no, I mean that there are other corrections as well. There were some printing errors and so on that we sorted out. So it, it's much better to get the paperback yes. version. All of those links are in the show notes and on our website. So we'll be sending that out uh, so you can get your copy. Yeah, we to- we thoroughly recommend the book. It's a great read. I haven't finished it, but again, Jane, thank you. Actually, uh, Jane, do you want to give people your Twitter handle so people can follow you on Twitter, Instagram, um, LinkedIn, whatever? Yeah, so it's just at Jane Setter, um, J-A-N-E-S-E-T-T-E-R. Phonetically, my, phonetically yeah. transcribed there. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, that, that bit is, but the, the handle is, is just, yes. uh, just normally spelt um, in, in orthographic <laughs> spelling. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on YouTube. I'm not, I'm not one of these kind of prolific YouTube people, but there are a few videos on YouTube. There's uh, mm-hmm. some of the intonation songs, for example, are on there if you want to do them as uh, karaoke um and uh yeah so there's various bits and bobs on there and and one of my classes on intonation actually which a lot of people have said they find it useful but i'm not i'm not one of these people who kind of does very professionally produced um, youtube videos or anything but yeah i mean i'm i'm very happy to interact with people on twitter and do quite regularly and quite regularly have disagreements <laughs> um but also have agreements so you know it's uh, it's uh, it's an interesting platform so do do find me on there i'm not um I, I am on instagram but i don't really post very much on there at all so, okay um i think twitter is the best place for me if you want to interact and uh you, you can email me as well um so my email address is j.e.setter at reading that's r-e-a-d-i-n-g dot ac dot uk looks like reading um but is reading that's the name of the town <laughs> Um, as in yeah okay uh, but you you can find me there as well if you want to email me about stuff um i'm very happy to to chat with people i mean you know i have a day job so i can't <laughs> spend a lot of time right. doing this but no, if, if, uh, yeah I'm, I'm happy to correspond with you one last compliment to and i forget who you mentioned it was that titled your book but one last compliment to that person or team because it lends itself very nicely to your voice speaks volumes too doesn't it 
Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they'll let me okay. do that. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe, maybe. I mean, it's very English, England, English focused. Um, and I think there might possibly be scope for another one. But, you know, it's up to the publisher, really. If this one's sold mm-hmm. enough, then they'll let me know. And uh, But, you know, I was very glad it went to take back them. Buy the book, um, folks. Yeah. Buy the book. There might be another one. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.